There was this big two-story yellow brick building just looming over the highway in Brucefield, and it was like there was trees growing out of the front steps. It was just falling apart. And I convinced the owner to let me look in it. And I thought, let me save it. And so my brother and I bought the building together, and I thought I'd, I'd use the downstairs for this factory space. And then I was like, well, what if the factory space had a showroom? And what if that showroom had like a toy museum in it? And what if the toy museum had interactive stuff like games and a, and a castle with a slide in it and, and some other fun stuff? It evolved into what has become uh, a destination retail store. And I'm sort of on the way to everywhere. I'm tapping into Exeter, Seaforth, Bayfield, Clinton, and beyond. I'm Mandy Sinclair, and on season two of Postcards from Huron County, I'll be delving into some of the industries that developed when settlers arrived in Huron County on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Neutral Peoples in an area that was subject to the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Agreement. Having left Huron County after high school in 1999, I never thought I would return to the area, at least not to live. But after spending many summers here catching up with family, on the beach soaking up the sun with a good read in between lake dips, and getting to know some of the small business owners, my opinion started to change around 2018. I began working on a plan with my life coach, thinking about what would it look like to make a move from Marrakesh, Morocco, where my days were filled with client meetings, meeting guests for food tours, writing for magazines, working events, back to Huron County. Well, it turns out I didn't really need to have plans in place. I got stuck here, in a way, during the global pandemic and had to settle in. And as a small business owner, I was inspired by the small businesses in the county that truly are destinations in themselves. But I also started to meet old friends who are making the move back to the county too. And as we emerged from the pandemic, they aren't planning to return to the city either. In fact, some are even launching their own businesses too. So to chat with me about moving back and setting up shop, Isaac Elliott Fisher is joining me to share his return to the area and tell us about the toy store he opened in a global pandemic. Thank you so much for joining me today, Isaac. Can you please tell listeners a bit about who you are and why Faux Pop Studios, where we are recording this interview, feels so familiar? Well, Faux Pop Studios is kind of connected to me in a funny way because there's this other company in the mix that's called Definitive Film. And um, Mark Hussey and Randall Lobb own Faux Pop, and they, uh, they've, they've kind of been doing this video, media, music, and stuff like that for quite a while. And I went to film school and stuff like that and then reconnected with Mark and Randall when I was coming out of film school, like, I don't know, well over a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and we decided to kind of join our companies together and create what's called Definitive Film. And so that company, we did um, some big documentaries, some pop culture documentaries. And so the sort of the culmination of, of all of the work we've done together resulted in this crazy studio space that you're in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you are originally from here in County, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So apparently you and I grew up like yes. literally a stone's throw from That's each other's crazy. houses. But also yeah, very typical bizarre. of Huron County. Everybody knows it everyone. It is, yeah. Like literally five doors away or something like that. Uh, yeah, I grew up um, in and around Clinton mostly. Um, we did move a lot in the town in Bayfield and that kind of thing back and forth. Um, but mostly, yeah, Clinton. And uh, moved away to go to film school which I guess is one of those things where you're like, you grow up in a small town and you want to get into the media business and you think, well, this is no place for me here. And, you know, like there's not really a future in the media business out here. Um, so I, I ran off to film school and had this sort of 
you know, that romantic notion of living in a city and, mm-hmm. and all this fun stuff and um, spent several years out of college uh, after after going to film school at Humber um, living in Guelph. And we had a, my wife and I bought a house in Paris for a while. Paris, Ontario, not Paris, France. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and yeah, so worked around there. But pretty much that entire time uh, out of post-secondary, I was in touch with and working with Mark and Randall um, at Faux Pop, as I mentioned. And probably around Thanksgiving 2008, I um, was in town uh, with some family and I met up with Mark and I said, let's meet up downtown. And we met up uh, out front of Coffee Cultures, back when Coffee Cultures was still in Goddard. And I said, let's, I've been, I've been kind of pursuing the idea of doing a documentary on the history of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because I really had started getting back into sort of toy collecting and really interested in that brand's history. Mm -hmm. And there really wasn't a lot of brand history docs yet. And I had done a documentary, (laughs) if you can call it that. It was more like a glorified music video about Mm -hmm. Toyota Land Cruisers, which are like these specific Toyota off-road vehicle that are very popular all around the world. And, And I had done this when I was 19 before I went to film school. And um, flew all over the place and did this this silly thing and sold the DVDs and it was back in like it was like a different era like it was like you could do direct to video still it was like the end of mm-hmm. of that era when you can go and do like a a video like that anyway so um, I had this idea that well why why couldn't we do this and I had kind of been turned down by um, the company that still owned the turtles at the time a company called Mirage. Um, and, uh, but yet I still tenaciously was like, no, let's do this. So I, I, I sat down with Mark and Rand, like, like I said, outside of coffee cultures. And I said, let's do a documentary about the Ninja Turtles. And Rand said, no. And Mark said, yeah, okay. And, uh, <laughs> that was kind of, kind of it. Um, we started this, this crazy journey, um, in late 2008, early 2009. Amazing. Yeah. It was just, it was, it was crazy. It was crazy how that film unfolded. Well, I just think it's crazy because, um, in 2020, I returned to Huron County. I thought I would only be here for a few months. I was, you know, living in Morocco, living my best life. I had no intentions of returning to this area after 20 years away. But now I have my business, Mandy Sinclair PR, which is based in Goddard, and I work with a global client list. And from our recent conversation, you mentioned that you also left Huron County and didn't think you'd ever return. What prompted you to return here, and where did you go after you left high school, and what skill sets did you gain? Yeah, so I mean, as I mentioned, we went to I went to film school in Toronto at Humber, and it, it's a funny thing, film school, because like so many of the arts businesses, you really it's not like there's a prerequisite to go to a film school to to work in the industry. So it was more like um, you know a glorified connection place and a place to explore and experiment your with 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 the craft, so to speak. But I. I don't know if I really took advantage of it as such. So I, I did that and then worked in many facets of the, of the business because I was kind of really stubbornly, I wanted to be a cinematographer. Like I wanted to film uh, movies. I wanted to be the, in charge of lighting and camera, which is what mm-hmm. the, the cinematographer's job is. And really you're supposed to, you know, in the traditional um, route, kind of work your way up, pay your dues, um, so to speak, and and uh, climb the, the, the ladder for years and years and years as assistants or techs. 
Uh, and I was like, no, I don't want to do that. Um, so I ended up, for some strange reason, in reality television. Oh, wow. Uh, because I could, I could pick up a camera and go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was uh, a, an industry that was still very alive and booming at the time. Um, so I shot a bunch of reality shows and was always trying to do other freelance stuff um, around you know, music videos and commercials and, um, and small stuff, a lot of small stuff. And then did a couple of independent science fiction horror films in there as well. And, and throughout this, this sort of side quest of, of I guess, my, my freelance career, um, I was, we were also doing the, the, the Turtles thing because it was kind of happening all at once. So, you know, Mark and Randall were still based in Godridge. I was based in, in Paris and, and we were like for all of our documentaries, we primarily just fly around. So, you know, you, you learn a ton doing, doing the sort of boots on the ground thing where you're, you're flying all over the place and, and experiencing something radically different, mm-hmm. especially in documentary world, because you enter into the spaces of creative people or um, industry people. You enter in, a lot of times into their homes. You enter into their businesses. You enter into the understanding of of an entire media culture around brand building and, and everything. So you kind of build up this huge, like, kind of like, knowledge base of how things are done or have been done in the past um, around all sorts of interesting facets of the industry from and in this case you know from toys and comics to cartoons and movies mm-hmm. all wrapped into sort of these these big super brands and of course in, in, in the, the case of turtles is it's really a human story about these two men um, who invented the turtles just as like a, a joke and, and it was a, a, an amazing rags to riches story and a very human story so we did that uh and we, we we did other films in that time and then we sold that film in 2014 and it wasn't until 2018 we had already been doing the dark crystal um in in the uk and then we around that time our first son was going to be born and we just decided you know what let's let's pull this big trigger uh pack up everything sell our house and move back um Back to Huron County. <laughs> wow. So let's just chat about the film Turtle Power, the definitive mm-hmm. history of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I'm just wondering, how did Paramount end up purchasing the film? That was that was a crazy story um, because it, it really is Randall's magic. Uh, Randall Lobb mm-hmm. really is an amazing person in a room because there's sort of a fearlessness uh, to his character that that allows him to kind of, um, no matter who the audience is, uh, he, he's never intimidated by, by, <laughs> by who he's talking to. So many of these documentaries, or these documentaries, we, we primarily the ones that we did at that time, were, were kind of like, I describe them as kind of like building a spec house. Like you kind of build the house and then you hope you sell it someday. Mm-hmm. And so we had finished collecting the story content for a movie and really started cutting it together and and over the course of five years had kind of had a lot we had every intention of of filming it and selling it within the first year of filming in 2009 because that was the 25th anniversary year of the turtles we are way beyond that now Mm -hmm. um and uh and that didn't happen and and then right in the middle of us filming it um peter laird who still owned the turtles the co-creator of the turtles he still owned the brand uh himself without his partner which was kevin eastman and he sold it to Viacom uh, right in the middle of all this. So 
Viacom owns Nickelodeon and Paramount. So we were kind of lost in the mix there for a while because a lot of what we were trying to do is be an escalator or an on-ramp to brand relaunches. So they were going to relaunch. Obviously, they were going to Viacom buys the Turtles for a huge sum of money, and they're going to relaunch everything, um, new movies, new cartoons. And so there we are with this historical product that nobody had really done something like before. And we had attached ourselves to the executive producers of the Paramount relaunch film. So that was the door that opened, that they, they kind of opened the door into the Paramount film company. And then Rand somehow got a meeting with the right person, and we kind of leveraged uh, other companies that were interested in the film. And they, they said, okay, we better buy this and sort of appease the fans and use it as a, um, a, a way to sort of, sh- sort of show that Paramount cares about the legacy of this brand. Mm-hmm. And, and it worked. I mean, they, they did very well with that, that film. And it, it, still, it still exists on many platforms today. They can, you can still find it out there, I think, on, on Paramount+. Plus. But yeah, it, uh, they, they put it out in 2014, just ahead of the, the release of the first Michael Bay live-action Turtles film. Um, did you have a launch party in Heron County? <laughs> well, if, if anybody... We did have a screening. We did have a screening at the, at the local theater. Mm-hmm. But your passion isn't just for Ninja Turtles. From what I understand, it's arcades and video games, superheroes, and more. In fact, you mentioned when we were chatting earlier that you wanted to actually start manufacturing toy soldiers, and this idea came to you while filming Dark Crystal in England. Is that correct? Yeah, so we we had gone on to produce a couple other documentary films, um, one on He-Man, the Masters of the Universe, and and we're still working on the Conan the Barbarian franchise history and a few other things. And we were doing what what you would call kind of a work-for-hire job for Netflix capturing the the behind-the-scenes of their Dark Crystal Age of Resistance series, all puppets, and it was just Mm -hmm. fantastic, a phenomenal experience because you're you know, in the trenches, literally in trenches, with these puppeteers who are the world's best with Henson, you know, living with them down <laughs> in these beautiful sets with these amazing puppets and the creature shop and everything. Mm-hmm. And we were over there in the UK, and it was so, so it happened to coincide with when my first son was born, and we were building our house and, and had moved back to Huron County to live with family while building a house and having a first kid. Very busy time. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, I wouldn't suggest doing that all at once. <laughs> and so I was looking for something to kind of collect for him. And I thought, well, you know, I used to love Little Britain's toy soldiers, specifically toy knights, mm-hmm. um, when I was a kid. And I had spent some time in the UK and, and Europe when I was a kid a, a few different times. And, and I thought that would be really fun to collect that. And I went searching and there was just nothing. There was just nothing in that bracket and I'm like well I'm in England I mean you you'd think that at least here I'd find some sort of toy night yeah but there there was just nothing so I started kind of imagining making kind of a wooden castle for him and collecting just some of the older ones that I had like go go eBay shopping mm-hmm. or whatever and that kind of evolved into well if I'm thinking this then other parents must be thinking this so what if I made the toy castles and sold them? And what if what if I made the toy knights? Could I make the toy knights? What if I manufactured them here? Like I sort of it sort of evolved like that, where you know you go from well, I could design toy soldiers, and maybe you could three D print them, or maybe you could design them and, and print them and then cast them, and and so because I was using 
taking sort of things I had learned in the effects portion, the, the effects, movie effects part of the business where I would be making costumes and monsters for, for you know, horror movies and sci-fi movies. And, and in the, the effects business, they use a lot of um, casting materials, which is basically like making silicone, silicone molds and, and two-part resins, and you'd cast these, these parts. And I naively thought that, oh, yeah, you could totally do that and make toys and sell them. It would be slow, but you could make them. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I didn't really realize is that all those, those chemicals are very toxic, and you can't sell them to children. Oh. <laughs> so, it's, uh, um, so after a few, uh, a, f- a few years of really developing, because it was t- taking pages out of, like, the He-Man history book and and like you having done the film on his, on He-Man and, and She-Ra and how that brand was started as a toy first and they had little comic books and they created the story around a product line rather than the other way around. Um, and so I was like, well, what if I did that? What if I came up with a, a cast of fantasy characters that were fantasy knights rather than uh, historical-based knights. And, I, and, and then, then, of course, you've got the, the excuse of being able to make dragons and griffins and stuff like that <laughs> <laughs> if you do fantasy stuff. So I, uh, I started designing a line, and I started in, in cor- in, inviting people I had met through the, the, doing the documentaries that are different toy people as consultants and artists, and, and they came in and helped a lot because they thought the idea was cool. And then I, I kind of took this idea further of how to make them here and realized that I had to do it in the traditional form of plastics manufacturing, which is injection molding manufacturing. So I decided to develop a way to achieve that process at a small scale without breaking the bank. Um, Because injection molding, why it is done primarily in in Asia, is the skill sets have kind of refined over there. um, And it is expensive to set up but incredibly inexpensive to replicate. So there are definitely plastics manufacturing, you know, mm-hmm. warehouse or uh, factories here, but they tend not to make toys. Toys are almost exclusively made in Asia. But mm-hmm. um, they they didn't used to be. It didn't always it wasn't always this way. Yeah. We've just sort of forgotten that we can do this. But so to make the the molds is very expensive, um, especially when you have twelve or thirteen figures. It gets ridiculously expensive. So. I came up with a way of, of doing it really cheaply while still maintaining this high level of detail because I'm like, I'm not an engineer, but I had to mm-hmm. kind of learn how to be an engineer while being an artist and kind of thinking outside the box. So that idea is still um, in the works. There's many other, other than Toy Nights, there's other things we're going to make. And then that's the whole reason why we ended up buying this building in Bruceville. <laughs> yeah, let's chat about that building, kind of bring you to where you are at the moment, right? Yeah. One of the things I think is so unique about Huron County and its small towns are the really niche shops that we have here. So, you know, there's the Dutch store in Clinton selling food stuff from Holland and Pianovations in Lonsboro, known really like well beyond Huron County borders for its piano sales. Even Coastal Coffee in Ashfield Township You know, you can stop by and have a coffee beneath the steeple of an old United Church. And these businesses really serve as destinations in themselves. And in 2020, you added to this destination shopping experience with a toy shop on the main drag of Brucefield, Ontario. Can you tell listeners about Village Toy Castle and what makes it worthy of a road trip to Huron County, please? It's a crazy one um, (laughs) because as as I've now mentioned, the, the, um, the toy factory thing is the impetus for all of it because... I was looking for a space to do the, the, the manufacturing part of it. Um, and 
like I, I was like, do I build like a big shop on my on my ba- in my backyard? Mm-hmm. Um, and do I you know rent a space in Clinton or somewhere else? And and so there's this <laughs> there was this big two story yellow brick building just looming over the highway in in Brucefield, and it was like there was trees growing out of the front steps. It was just falling apart, and I. I had looked in it before. I had convinced the owner to let me look in it. I don't know why. Um, and um, then I, I got her to let me in again. And I twisted her arm enough. I kept saying, like, let me save it. Like, let me save this building. Like, it's raining inside. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a very old building. Um, and I thought, what if I bought that and restored it, which is stupid if you think about it, um, and... and uh, put the factory in there because now I'm adding an enormous amount of, of work on top of just, Oh yeah, I rented a space and stuck a factory in it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> like, like I added like an insane amount of investment, um, to take a 4,500 square foot building and, and restore it from zero. Um, and so my brother and I bought the building together because the, the building originally, no, no, nobody alive remembers this being the case, but it was um, a, a hotel before the turn of the last century. Mm-hmm. So it, um, it has an upstairs that had been at one point turned back into or turned into three apartments. So the hotel layout was still there, but they, they converted it into three apartments after the hotel was no longer a hotel. So um, my brother needed a place to live and to start his life. And so, and I thought I'd, I'd use the downstairs for this factory space and then I was like well what if the factory space had a showroom and what if that showroom had like a toy museum in it and what if the toy museum had interactive stuff like games and a and a castle with a slide in it and, and some other fun stuff like a, like an activity space um, because I've got three kids and there's nothing to do out here mm-hmm. on, a, on a wet or cold day um, you know indoors so I thought well what if we did that? What if we had an activity space? Well, what if that activity space also had like a toy store in it? Because then that would monetize the space so that it would, it would sustain itself. So I, it evolved into what has become uh, a destination retail store. Um, because, I mean, I, I can't rely on foot traffic in Brucefield mm-hmm. to sustain a store. So I had to make it worth traveling far and wide to. And I mean, we've traveled a lot for the films we've done. You know, I've been in fantastic toy stores all over the world. And uh, and I thought to myself, you know, I can't beat those stores in volume or size or four stories or, a you know, an entire Ferris wheel in the front lobby. I could put a Ferris wheel in the window. Mm-hmm. Um, can't ride in it. <laughs> um, but, uh, I, I thought, but I can I can beat them in character and experience. Uh, because it is that kind of thing, that magic that like Walt Disney always tried to do, where it's like the design is right down to the light switches. I mean, I'm not there yet, but you know, you want to be every single thing from walking up to the building to <laughs> entering the door uh, is an experience. So um, we we restored the original charm of the building and everything, and, and um, there's more to go. There's a lot more to go, but. Uh, uh, yeah, so the idea is then that the factory element will still be part of the downstairs uh, when it is up and running eventually, and you'll be able to see that from the store. There's like a window into that space. Um, so there's so many elements of why somebody would come here. I mean, like the toy museum stuff alone, there's like a dedicated museum space in the back, but they're uh, above every shelf in the entire store, at the top of the shelf, um, along the walls, along the, the, the merchandisers in the, in the space, there's more 
we'll call them artifacts, <laughs> you know, <laughs> retro toys, antique toys. What type of retro toys do you have? The museum in the back, uh, that, that display area is set up to celebrate the evolution and history of the doll action figure world and the branded toy products of the 80s primarily but that really started with Barbie in 1959 so we have 1959 Barbie and then the first boy doll action doll which was they weren't allowed they were not allowed to call it a doll they had to call it an action figure uh, was the GI Joe action figure um, and in 68 I want to say 65 68 somewhere there so so that that changed everything because Barbie was like that kind of concept of the Gillette and the razor thing. You could buy the doll and then you would buy accessories. And that cha- and, it, and it changed the world because up until then, um, little girls were, were basically only to play with dolls that represented uh, training to be a mother. Where people like to, to paint a negative picture around Barbie now to do with more body issues and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But it's like, um, but she is really quite quite amazing as a product because she did... Like, if you look at her entire history, you kind of see the evolution of the women's rights movement and all these types of things in there because what Barbie could do was have agency over herself as a person. And that was a very, that was the very first time that, like, really a toy for girls could do that. And that, that kind of sparked an entire industry around that type of play if you will and then Mm -hmm. so gi joe comes along there's aspirational boy stuff there then you have branded content which was which was really not something that um, anybody wanted to take a risk on because movies and um, television shows would come and go and it would take a lot of money and a lot of time to set up a toy line Mm -hmm. and if the movie or the 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 show didn't do very well then you've got a whole bunch of products sitting there that you cannot sell and there's no such thing as a secondary market. There's no VHSs. There's nothing. So Kenner took a risk on a show called The Six Million Dollar Man in the 1970s, and it blew off the shelves. It was amazing. So those three big dolls kind of represent the beginning. And then that same company, Kenner, did Star Wars. And then Star Wars was a big risk because nobody wanted to take a risk on a silly sci-fi movie that's probably going to bomb. And, of course, that changes everything again. Mm-hmm. And then Ronald Reagan deregulates the FCC in 1981 or 1980 and then allows toy companies to pay for cartoon content. And so then you have this sort of this ocean, this sea tsunami of products that are all, you know, the Strawberry Shortcakes and My Little Ponies and mm-hmm. He-Man, Masters of the Universe and Transformers, G.I. Joe, etc. The, the reboot of G.I. Joe. Uh, then down to Turtles. And then Turtles kind of represents near the end of that where everything is re-regulated because parents got kind of frustrated. Um, so, and a lot of interesting things that happen in that. So that, that part of the museum celebrates that. And then throughout the store, there's products that have got interesting stories or represent different histories like Lego, mm-hmm. a very old Meccano, a very old um, Tinker Toy, Tonka, board games, all that kind of thing. Um, so that's that's throughout. And then there's artifacts of the building itself. There's um, these old arcade machines that we can play. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's free ones. There's coin ones. There's And then there's, of course, the, the slide and the castle with the rope bridge and everything. So That's amazing um, because given that, you know, the collection that you have really does – span several generations yes i can imagine it's not just little children who want to come to your shop as a destination i'm just wondering what is the age range that you're seeing stop in and where are they coming from oh that's that's the beautiful thing is that we we're very excited that that what what i hoped would happen where we 
primarily the products that we sell are, are aimed at the sort of three and up bracket. We didn't really want to do a, a store that, that focused on preschool because there's a lot of preschool products out there. And, and I firmly believe that the, the five to 10 year olds are being left in the dust. Uh, and a lot of them are being left in the dust in favor of adult collectors. Um, adult collectors are definitely part of the market, um, but it's becoming too much of the focus, in my opinion. It's very it's taking away from children's play because we all just assume that oh they get tablets there you go, mm-hmm. um, but that's not it's not healthy that's for sure. And it's also if there's nobody nobody making products for those kids, then then of course they're not going to play with toys because there's nothing for them. So it's been my goal to to not only make products for that bracket, but also to find them um, for that bracket. So. That's my, that's my goal is to have that. Obviously, we sell to, to everybody. But what's really exciting is that everybody from the little babies that are in strollers looking up at the train driving around the ceiling to, to people that are brought in from, say, old folks' homes with PSWs on a day trip mm-hmm. who are just so excited to climb into an arcade machine and drive it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. Right? Like, so literally one to 100 is enjoying this space. And what are some of the top arcade um, games that people are flocking to? There's um, a Ninja Turtles arcade in there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, The Simpsons we just brought in. Um, there's an, a, a, an old 70s home pinball machine, so it's slightly smaller and it's free. It doesn't take coins. Uh, and there's um, my favorite is the – it's one of the first driving arcades. It's, I think it's the mid-'80s, and it was one of the first ones that you would sit in um, and you'd, you'd drive down this highway really fast. And um, – we ended up with it because we were doing a documentary about this guy named Yu Suzuki, a video game designer in Japan who worked for, for Sega in the 80s. And he um, mm-hmm. he so, so happened to design these early Sega arcades that were experiential-based arcades. So like the ones where you would sit on a motorcycle or you'd, you'd sit, in, sit in the cockpit of a jet airplane. So this, this driving one, the game was working, but the, the cabinet is actually supposed to move as the car drives. So you have this sort of G-force thing. I finally got it to work again and it's kind of crazy because you're sitting in this great big wooden thing that's like moving side to side really quickly it's kind of like a carnival ride (laughs) so it's my favorite but then who repairs them do you have that skill set no i i can i can do very little i was very proud of myself that somebody um from england actually helped walk me through how to to figure out which chip was not working in a part of the the system but um that's that took some that took some like other people's expertise. Mm-hmm. Well, there is a there is a person that I found. He has a website um, in California who used to work for Sega. He'll repair these for people. So I've, in two occasions, sent him down the game boards. So they're they're quite large, like the actual game. And because if you imagine back in in the 80s and 70s, the the amount of processing power required to make the video game look good required this whole dedicated circuit board for that game. Whereas nowadays, you know your cell phone can store yeah. about you know a million of those games mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? exactly you know? you're right and like the amount of data that that those didn't take up is, is astounding <laughs> um but yeah like there, there's this this guy and, and I'm, it's like i keep saying like once people like him are gone like that that knowledge will be gone mm-hmm. i'm sure that people will carry that on in hobbies and stuff yeah it's, it's pretty intense it's sort of, i never intended on getting into the arcade hobby like it wasn't really a an early passion of mine or anything i didn't go to arcades much as a kid there was like one at becker's or not becker's yeah. in, in target and target and there was like that that cruising the cruising usa or something i'd probably yes, cost the right. looney which was outrageous back then <laughs> and it was like yeah i think i used it once or twice 
like you know, we grew up in the same block, so you, like there really wasn't access to comic books the same way. No, and I mean that actually is interesting because it, it loops back to a bigger picture thing here. Where why do this? Um, well, because as you remember, when we grew up in Clinton, you could get anything. Yeah you wanted on the main street of Clinton. You could, and, and, and home hardware had the, the toy section in the basement and mm-hmm. the back. Um, this guy got my first Ninja Turtles there. Uh, Stedman's department yep. store had departments in it. So putting this here in Brucefield the way that we did, a lot of people go like, well, what are you doing? Like they, 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 they go, you're crazy. What is this? And then they walk in and go, oh my God, this totally makes sense. Because mm-hmm. you're like, you're you're in this big ancient building that can be seen from two highways, like when you're when you're crossing yeah. through Field. It's very very visible, and I compete with nothing else. And I'm sort of on the way to everywhere. I'm tapping into Exeter, Seaforth, Bayfield, Clinton, and beyond. Um, London people who are traveling through for hockey or whatever. Like there's there's a ton of traffic on this highway, and so. Would have I loved to have bought a, a, a you know the Victoria Block downtown Clinton and do the same thing there? Of course, um, but it would have been unlikely mm-hmm. <laughs> to be able to do what we did here in this building yeah. by comparison. I'm just curious though because I really um, the point that you made about you know passing on a tablet to the child like the three to ten year olds I do find that quite concerning. I'm not a parent, but nevertheless. <laughs> uh, so what are some of the toys that are popular, or what are you? bringing in stocking for that age range well that's the the nice thing about that is that at the end of the day these children are still children mm-hmm. like they are, they really are so even those who are obsessive about their their technology at their at their heart they still are just kids so we try to bring in stuff that that would be on brand for what they're looking for but that's difficult because primarily the big toy companies are chasing, like I say, they're chasing the adult collectors. Mm-hmm. So they're rebooting Transformers and yeah. He-Man and the superheroes forever and ever and ever. Mm-hmm. So my say my action figure section, nothing is original there except for maybe one brand by Moose Toy um, because it's all <laughs> these, these old ideas, which is difficult because I'm trying to bring in different things. But the, the old standbys like the Barbies and the Hot Wheels are always going to be popular. Mm-hmm. And games are hugely popular, like board games and stuff. That The pandemic has really shown that to, to be a thing, a family-oriented uh, co-play. But we also try to bring a lot of stuff from Playmobil, Playmobil's a big one. I do have Lego now, not a, not enough Lego, but I do have Lego finally. Um, Playmobil's a big one for me. I always love Playmobil. Um, but we do bring in a lot of stuff from a novelty company called Schilling that makes really, really retro stuff. So they'll make the the whoopee cushions and the pop oh, yeah. guns and the gyro wheels and the wooden boats and the tin robots and tin tops. So we, we have a ton more of that because that's really popular at Christmas. It's, because it's, just, it's really, really hearkening back to a bygone era. And there is like this nostalgia and mm-hmm. simplicity for it. It's not branded. Even the kids obsessed with video games will put the video game down and play with a whoopee cushion or, yeah, <laughs> or a absolutely. gag joke. You know, mm-hmm. there's a little kid who lives in, in town here and he comes in to get candy because we have retro candy here too and, and comic books and everything. And he didn't realize that we had all these arcade machines that are right there. And he had never put a coin in an ar- arcade machine before. So he had no idea that's what you did. So I'm like, oh, no, no, here. Yeah, I usually I usually have a bunch of quarters and I'll, I'll, I'll put them into to the systems to play to show kids how to play them. Or, or many kids have never touched a pinball machine in their lives. And they'll, and they'll go back there and spend all this time and have a blast and want to come back simply for that. And it's And it's like... There is something simple about that 
And I think that and even though they are video games, there's a different intention in their design. They are not designed with the same uh, algorithmic yep. um, focused. They're not trying to sell you anything other than the brand of Simpsons or Turtles or Super Mario. Mm-hmm. We also have this this retro 70s tel- or 80s television under the museum in this paneled kind of living room area that you can play a Nintendo um, <gasps> to sit there and play like Super Mario. The original Nintendo? Yeah, yeah. That's so, incredible. So everybody says, oh my God, this is grandma's living room. And, and, and you know, like, yeah. so, so you can go to sit, sit. And so, so if you have this immersive experience across all these elements and, and like I say, tie into people's memories, whether they're, they're literally kids now mm-hmm. or they are in their 40s or 50s or the grandparents or or whatever, they they will all have something here that they will remember. On my podcast, we've chatted a bit about hotels that once dotted the county highways and provided a place to rest for travelers back in the day. So Mr. Yates, as we knew him from high school, um, spoke about the history of tourism in the county on a recent episode. Mark Canton recalled the day his the Balmoral Hotel came down in St. Joseph. And we also recorded an episode about Wing Night at the Boot, so we obviously heard tales about the legendary hotel in Blyeth. And I understand the building that now houses the village toy castle once attracted other guests. Can you tell us a bit about the building's past? Yeah, so that's been kind of this other pet project of mine this whole time what, that we've been restoring it because like, it's been sitting here more or less empty for about 30 years, like 25, 30 years, more or less completely derelict and empty. Um, and just rotting. Mm-hmm. And and so it's been threatened to be torn down many times. It would have been torn down if we had not <laughs> put in oh, really? a, a monumental effort. Oh, yeah, it was very close to being. And, I mean, we live in, we live in a very young country, right? There is not mm-hmm. that many old buildings here, and those old buildings are no more than 200 years old. You know, it's not like when you go to England and you can yeah. be in a house that's, oh, it's 900 years old. Oh, wow. Uh, you, know, like, mm-hmm. you know, and so the, uh, and it's just somebody's house. Um, but yeah, no, in this case, we immediately tried to start digging into, okay, what was it? Wh- who, you know, what was the building originally? And and uh, what history can I pull out from that? Because unfortunately, like what was left in the building was sold in estate sales um, in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, I've seen catalogs from it, which would make does make me <laughs> very sad because <laughs> there was like there was like cabinets of old pistols and the 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 bank safe from the bank that was in here and 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 that old cash register and everything like that. So anyway, the um, uh, a lot of furniture. Mm-hmm. Um, so originally. We don't actually, we still haven't found the records to show when it was built. Um, I did find the records, I just don't remember the dates of when the proprietor came on the boat from England, His na- a man named William Dixon. And so he came over, I want to say in the 18, I want to say the 1830s or 40s. Um, but it might not be that that early because, no, it might be later than that because the the building burnt down mm-hmm. in 1896. So we have photos of it prior to the 
the fire and one photo and and it took the the museum several months we finally found because i knew the photos existed because i had seen low resolution copies of them but they i needed a high resolution copy of the photos because i want to restore the original balcony on the front um wow. so i want to get as close to the original wood the the cornicing work which is not it won't be exact because the photo's mm -hmm. not that good but um i want to get high resolution photos which are printed on the walls here at the store and so there were two photos of it post 1897 because it we found the, the newspaper article of when it burnt down and i've got it printed here too and so the uh, the original building's back walls are still this building uh they they only they only replace the front two walls uh the front wall and the south wall i should say um so the building like burnt to the ground everything was lost including two mules and a cow or something uh oh, wow. nobody no, nobody died in it but um then mr dixon uh, went on to maintain it as a hotel. I think that the bank moved in, Molson's bank moved into the bottom right of the hotel in the 1917 or so. And then around there, you're talking early days of automobile comes in at some point, mm -hmm. and then in 20s and 30s, and then after that, the hotels of these areas started to become irrelevant because yeah. they were really all about how far can you go with a horse in a day. Mm -hmm. um, so for like a dollar a night, you can come to this place. Now, uh, in searching all of the newspaper archives, I would find so many articles that mentioned um, the oyster dinners. The love the Seaforth Women's Club enjoyed a lovely oyster dinner at the Brucefield Dixon House. Um, and so, oh, wow. I mean, the newspaper articles of that era are hilarious because you've got entire columns that just talk about who visited who on what day. And that's like, really? This is making the newspaper? Oh, for sure. That's the gossip I want to know. Oh my gosh. Like Edna Simpson came from <laughs> Clinton to spend time with, oh my gosh. It's so like, it's really funny. Um, and the names, the names are fan fantastic. I wish we had names like that still. So anyway, mm -hmm. um, there was only two or three areas of the basement that are untouched. Like everything else had been sort of dug out. And so there's a couple of crawl spaces. And in, in, in restoring this building, I had to basically, you know, pour new footings and steel posts and steel beams to push up the floor and push up the, the roof and re-flatten everything. Like incredibly extensive. So I was digging footings in the crawl space uh, and I went down to a, a, the, the level I thought I should go down. And the concrete guy's like, no, go down another foot. The, the soil's still too soft. Mm -hmm. And of course I go down another foot and it's a carpet of like liquor bottles that are all wow. fallen in from, from the fire and lots of other things like, um, like, molt, like melted glass and mm -hmm. old shoes and, um, and tons of dishware that was smashed and portions of the kitchen. But in, in the back, we actually did find oyster shells, um, which, are, which is fantastic because it's like they didn't get there by accident. Like it was something that was always being written about and there they are. There's yeah. the oyster shells under the foundation. So um, we were able to find this kind of thing, but really the legacy of, of William Dixon, you know, he dies in an old folks home in Brucefield um, after returning here from Exeter. Um, he, he dies in, in the old folks home in 1924 at the age of 86 or 88, depending on which newspaper you read. Mm -hmm. And then his, his, his children, I think, I think the only, I tried through the ancestry.ca, I was trying to figure out if any of the local Dixons were related. Now they could be, uh, I didn't get that far, but his children, I think, and his children's children die out in the 80s, and I don't think that there's any lineage left. Mm -hmm. um, but it's amazing because 
that era and those stories and those people and they were coming and going in, in hotels and there was a fire and there was, you know, yeah. people that were staying and they were having, you know, meals and there's, it's gone. There is nothing left. Like there's no records. There's no, like, and it, and it's so tragic that there's like these municipalities and these tiny little villages and stuff. There's no curators of that. So I've become a little bit of a, I don't know, a flag waver about that kind of thing because, mm -hmm. Because I firmly kind of believe that if you own these old buildings, you're kind of a steward of their history. Yeah. And you're a steward of that, that what they represent to a community. So, yeah. So that I look at it and go, I hope that we can stand as an example that even though we had no money and, you know, we begged, borrowed and stole and, mm -hmm. and, and, and everybody put their elbow grease in as we restored this and re-bricked it and we're going to put the porch back on and, and like we did it as it was wow. we restored its original beauty without taking like oh we'll just we'll clad it all in steel you know and cover mm -hmm. up the the old rotting brick no no the i had guys come in and restack re um gr like like grind out all the mortar lines and repack them by hand the way it was done with lime mortar and it you know it was done like a lot of work Amazing. just to do that kind of a thing and, and save it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and it has to be done in these buildings or, or you lose, you lose your them. local history. It's gone. Absolutely. Yeah. I completely agree. Oh, well, this has been so great. It's so fun to chat with you and to hear your energy and you know, the ideas that you're bringing to here in County. So thank you so much for, for chatting with me and joining me today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Postcards from Huron County is made possible thanks to the Huron Heritage Fund, distributed through the Huron County Museum. The museum is one of my favorite spots in Huron County for their interesting exhibitions and Thursday evening international movie screenings. And also thanks to Community Futures Huron. The folks at Community Futures Huron have been supportive not only of my idea, but many others in the community. The Village Toy Castle in Brucefield, the Bayfield River Roads Brewing in Hops, Ice Culture in Hensel, and the Sloman School on Wheels in Clinton, to name a few. And they are truly good folks. According to the Conference Board of Canada, for every $1 that Community Futures Huron invests, another $4.50 of economic activity is generated locally. Find out more about how they may be able to support your ideas at cfhuron.ca. That's cfhuron.ca. Postcards from Huron County is produced and hosted by Mandy Sinclair with audio production by Clint Mackey at Faux Pop Media in Goderidge.